Well, thank you, Maria and the worship team for leading us in that worship music together. Uh, before we jump into the sermon for this morning, I do want to do a brief pastoral prayer time and make you aware of uh, some needs and requests and praises. For the month of February, we are praying for Ron and Nancy Minton. They're our missionaries to the Ukraine, and they have a strategic ministry that I want to tell you a little bit about. Uh, in the Ukraine, 90% of missionaries go to the capital city of Kiev, but Ron and Nancy had a vision to teach Bible classes for pastors and other Christians who wanted formal Bible education uh, and, and to offer that for free. But the problem we run into doing Bible education in some other countries is that even if you offer the classes for free, uh, the people from that country may not have uh, the means, either the time or the money, to be able to travel to whatever city you're hosting the classes in and take those classes. And so Ron and Nancy have deliberately not uh, based their ministry out of Kiev. They've partnered with five churches in the five largest cities in the Ukraine outside of Kiev, and they travel to those cities and do modular classes uh, for pastors and for other believers who want training. Over the years, Ron has been strategic about finding uh, Bible professors at seminaries in Kiev who are evangelical and trading teaching so that he'll teach a class at their seminary in Kiev, but then he'll recruit them to teach one of his classes out at one of the other cities. He's partnered with other works, and his, the amount of classes uh, Ron and Nancy are offering every year has grown. Uh, their student uh, body has grown over the years. They've expanded, I know, out into offering classes in Poland, and they hope to offer a class soon in Estonia. And their prayer request for us uh, this month uh, is just for prayer overcoming some of the travel restrictions uh, that make scheduling classes in the various cities they want to go to more difficult. Uh, they also have a startup class that's going to begin in, in Estonia, and they are asking for our prayer for that as well. In terms of our own body, there's also uh, one need and one praise I want to make you aware of. Jasper is having knee surgery this Thursday, and we need to pray for him for that, that God's healing hand would be on him. Uh, and also a praise. Uh, many of you know we've been praying for Jane. She uh, contracted uh, COVID-19, and we were praying for her to recover. And uh, she has fully recovered. And not only has she fully recovered, uh, but she hasn't passed it on to anyone in the family. And so Tima, uh, in particular, is very thankful for that. And we want to return thanks and praise for her. Please bow with me, if you would, in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this ministry that Ron and Nancy Minton have in the Ukraine. We pray that you would bless them with life and good health. We pray that you would encourage them with the joy of seeing their ministry bear good fruit in the lives of Ukrainian Christians, building up the church, helping, helping the church to understand what your word means by what it says and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and, and to interpret the Bible well and to become men and women who delight in your word, but not only delight in your word, but also uh, are doers of it. Uh, please bless their ministry. We pray that in your providence, you would help them to be wise in overcoming some of these travel restrictions uh, that are making scheduling more difficult and that they would be wise 
about how they go about scheduling future classes and future travel. We also pray for this class that they have been invited uh, to begin offering in Estonia, and uh, we pray, if it be your will, that they would be able to travel there without any difficulty and uh, that you would move in the hearts of believers in Estonia to travel to the local church that's hosting it and to be built up uh, in the classes that they offer. We also pray for Jasper, Father, please heal his knee. Um, and I pray that uh, this, is a, this is a trial for him to go through, especially being so active. And we pray that he would turn to you and find you to be a refuge uh, during this trial and that you would comfort him and bring full healing. We also want to thank you that Jane has recovered from COVID and, uh, and hasn't passed it on to the family. And uh, we thank you for the good health that their family is enjoying, and we pray that they would use it for your service. We also uh, ask now, as we turn to your word, that you would help us to understand what you have revealed, that you would show us your beauty through what the psalmist says to us this morning. I pray that you would encourage and comfort those who need encouragement. I pray that there would be an exhortation and a correction here for those who need to hear it as well, and uh, that you would guide us wisely through what you reveal to us through Psalm 23. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, please turn in your Bible to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is one of the most beloved psalms by God's people. We also refer to it as the shepherd psalm. <clears throat> And I'd like us to meditate on its riches together this morning. I'm going to begin by reading Psalm 23. However, I'm going to do something a little different from what I normally do. I'm going to read my own translation from Hebrew into English of, uh, uh, of Psalm 23. Uh, and during the sermon, I'll give some explanation and a justification for where my uh, translation might differ from the one you're reading. However, Follow along with me in your own Bible uh, while I read Psalm 23. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your mace and your crook, they comfort me. You prepare a table before, before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the presence of Yahweh forever. In Psalm 23, David uses two metaphors to speak of how he's experienced God's care. David has experienced God to be a good shepherd and a gracious host. Now, when you see a metaphor in Scripture, you need to remember that metaphors are not there just as ornamental language. They're not there just to bring some beauty to the text. They convey meaning. Metaphors in the Old Testament tell you what a person or a thing is like. And the dominant theme of Psalm 23 is that Yahweh is a good shepherd. Now, that presents a problem for us as modern urban-dwelling folk because we're disconnected from the experience of the shepherd-sheep relationship. Uh, I think very few of us have ever owned sheep or ever tried to take care of sheep. And what that means for us is this. 
Because we don't know sheep and how to care for them, there are nuances of meaning and richness to David's uh, comparisons in the psalm that can go completely over our heads because we just, we don't live close to livestock and we've never taken care of sheep. And so we need to bridge that gap in understanding that historical background. And for that purpose, I'm going to quote liberally during the sermon from Philip Keller's book, Uh, a shepherd's look at Psalm 23, because I don't want us to miss David's meaning. The most important observation to make about the shepherd-sheep relationship is this. An individual sheep's lot in life is almost entirely dependent on whether they're cared for by a good or bad shepherd. Philip Keller explains it this way in his book. Sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require, more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. When all is said and done, the welfare of any flock is entirely dependent upon the management afforded them by their owner. The tenant sheepman on the farm next to my first ranch was one of the most indifferent managers I've ever met. He was not concerned about the condition of his sheep. His land was in neglect. He gave little or no time to the flock, letting them pretty well forage for themselves as best they could. They fell prey to dogs, cougars, and rustlers. Every year, these poor creatures were forced to gnaw away at bare brown fields and impoverished pastures. Every winter, there was a shortage of nourishing hay and wholesome grain to feed the hungry ewes. Shelter to safeguard and protect the suffering sheep from storms and blizzards was scanty and inadequate. They had only polluted, muddy water to drink. There was a lack of salt and other trace minerals needed to offset their sickly pastures. Their thin, weak, and diseased condition Uh, made the sheep a poor and pathetic sight. In my mind's eye, I can still see them standing at the fence, huddled sadly in little knots, staring wistfully through the wires at the rich pastures on the other side. As David looks back on his life, he sees that he has been cared for, but not by the negligent shepherd that, uh, uh, that Philip Keller just told us about. David has been cared for by a good shepherd who's provided for all his needs and led him in paths of righteousness. Now, we don't like to dwell on it, but Psalm 23 doesn't just compare God to a good shepherd. Psalm 23 also compares us to sheep. Uh, now, we don't like that, right? And, uh, and the reason why is because it's not flattering. And, and Tim, excuse me, Philip Keller explains why. He says, it's no accident that God has chosen uh, to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways, and I'll explain in that in the rest of the book. Our mass mind, our mob instincts, our fears and timidity, our stubbornness, our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. I remember when I was a boy, one time a a pastor was telling us that the Bible compares us to sheep, and he told us, well, the most important thing you need to understand about sheep is that they're dumb. And I was offended by that. I was offended that the Bible was saying I was, you know, dumb and, and stupid. And when I grew older, I learned through another pastor that the most distinguishing mark of, uh, the, the most distinguishing characteristic of sheep is not that they're dumb. Sheep are intelligent creatures. That's actually one of the reasons they're so skittish. They have good reasons to be afraid, and they're well aware of it. Sheep are actually very, very intelligent creatures. They're not dumb. But left to themselves, as intelligent as they are, they will die either of dehydration or hunger 
or at the hands of a predator. I mean, think about it. Uh, if a predator comes at uh, one of the sheep, what is the sheep going to do? I mean, if you just look at them, you can tell they're not very aerodynamic, right? They're probably not going to win uh, if they flee. And when they get attacked, it's not like they have claws and fangs, right? They're, they're fairly defenseless creatures. The distinguishing mark of sheep is that they are incapable of independence. They're weak. And that actually fits with what the Bible says about humanity. Weakness is one of the most fundamental aspects of what it means to be human. And that's an aspect of humanity which our culture doesn't like to tell us about. And often we as Christians don't want to think about. But it's one of the most fundamental realities we face. By creation, we are incapable of living independent of our Heavenly Father's care and guidance, both spiritually and physically. The God on whom we depend must come through for us or we die. That's not a truth that we like to admit, but it is part of what this metaphor is teaching in Psalm 23, and that fits with what the rest of Scripture teaches us. See, we live in a culture that prizes the rugged individualist who is independent and self-sufficient. And you think about it even as parents, right? We want to raise sons and daughters that grow up to be men and women who are independent and capable of providing for their own needs. And, and that's a good thing. That's actually one of the goals of parenting. But that, that goal to be independent often combines when we're adults in adulthood with our pride and our desire to live independent from God. I mean, think about it this way. What grown man among you wants to be compared to a sheep? Even if you clarify for me that you're comparing me to a ram, I still don't like it, right? I'd rather be compared to a, a cunning fox or a swift lion or a, a strong Kodiak bear, right? Uh, I don't want to be compared to a defenseless plant eater. I want to be compared to a tough, rugged, independent, strong, meat-eating carnivore at the top of the food chain. That's what I want to be compared to. But that's not what Scripture does, and, and that's not what David and the Holy Spirit speaking through him does here. And so I would just say this to you men, if you're offended by this metaphor, I would say to you, a lot of good can come to you through Psalm 23, but that's not going to happen if you won't bow the knee to being compared to a, a ram. I mean, rams are pretty tough. They got those big horns, right? They like, to, they like to collide with each other like a bunch of football players. But left to themselves, as tough and masculine as rams are, they will still die of dehydration or hunger or at the hands of a predator if there's not a shepherd caring for them. And if you're not sold on this idea, if I haven't sold you yet, let me just say, the author of this psalm, David, he was a manly man. His credentials as a manly man are impeccable. Uh, you can't accuse David of being feminized or weak or a passive man. He killed a lion and a bear before there were guns. He killed a giant in individual combat. He, he was a mighty warrior and a great general in his own day. And yet here, in this prayer and this poem that he offers, he's content to compare himself to a sheep that needs God's care and guidance. And speaking of God's care, David is confident as he looks to the future uh, that he will suffer no lack. Now, now what does that mean? Uh, I shall not want, I, I'll suffer no lack. Well, I believe that this is parallel to what the psalmist, another psalmist, says in Psalm 84, verse 11. Uh, there the psalmist says, speaking of God, 
no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I think that's the sense in which David is saying he will suffer no lack. And I think as Christians, we need to be honest about this verse. Um, There are times when the shepherd leads the sheep, for instance, through the valley of the shadow of death, where there is no water, there are no pastures, but it's a short journey, it's temporary, he knows the sheep aren't going to die from it, and in fact, the journey through that valley is necessary to move them on to greater pastures. And so, we need to be honest as Christians. There are times of temporary lack. There are times when, in His wisdom, God won't give us everything we want or even everything that we really think we need. There will be some suffering and some trials and persecution, but I think the idea here is this. You will never lack anything that is good for your soul according to God's definition of what's good for your soul. And I know that puts you in a position, if you're like me, you're going to argue with God a lot about, you know, what you think is best for your soul. That's, that's kind of a constant part of my own spiritual life. But I think that's what he's talking about here. You won't lack anything that's good for your soul according to God's wise definition of what's good for you. And that's key. Yahweh is a good shepherd. And actually, because he's a good shepherd, he won't be made into your sugar daddy. He won't be the errand boy of all your wandering desires. But he will care for you in such a way that you won't lack what's best for your eternal soul. And then in verse 2, moving on, David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So the good shepherd guides us to green fields and still waters in the desert of this fallen world. But that's not the most amazing thing of this verse. The, The destination is not really the part that I think you're meant to be surprised by in this verse. The most amazing thing here is that God's care so calms the sheep that they actually lie down and rest. You see, sheep are restless, anxious creatures. To get them to lie down during the day, they'll lie down at night when they sleep, but to get them to lie down during the day and be calm is actually a very remarkable thing. And Philip Keller talks about that in his book. Now, I want to warn you, I'm going to read an extended passage from Philip Keller, and I don't want to lose you, uh, you know, just reading a book, but stick with me. I'm going to do this because what Philip Keller says is priceless for understanding this idea of the sheep lying down and being calm because of the shepherd's care. The strange thing about sheep is that because of their very makeup, it's almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free from all fear. Because of their social behavior within the flock, sheep will not lie down unless they're free from friction with others of their kind. If tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. Only when free from these pests can they relax. And lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel the need of finding food. They have to be free from hunger. It's not generally known that sheep are so timid and easily panicked that even a stray jackrabbit suddenly bounding from behind a bush can stampede a whole flock. When one startled sheep runs in fright, a dozen others will bolt with it in blind fear, not even waiting to see what they're running from. As long as there's even the slightest suspicion of danger from dogs, coyotes, cougars, bears, or other enemies, the sheep will stand up ready to flee for their lives. They have little or no means of self-defense. They are helpless, timid, 
feeble creatures whose only recourse is to run. In the course of time, I came to realize as a shepherd that nothing so quieted and reassured the sheep as to see me in the field. The presence of their master and owner and protector put them at ease as nothing else can do, and this applied both day and night. The second source of fear from which the sheepman delivers the sheep is the tension and rivalry and cruel competition that's often in the flock itself. In every animal society, there's an established order of dominance or status within the group. Uh, In a pen full of uh, chickens, it's referred to as the pecking order. With cattle, we call it the horning order. Among, Among sheep, we speak of the budding order. Generally speaking, an arrogant, cunning, and dominant old ewe will boss around a bunch of sheep. She maintains her position of prestige by budding and driving other ewes or lambs away from the best grazing. Succeeding her in precise order are the other sheep uh, who've all established and maintained their exact position in the flock by using the same tactics of budding and thrusting at those below and around them. Because of this rivalry, tension, and competition, there is friction in the flock. The sheep can't lie down and rest in contentment. Always they have to stand up and defend their rights and contest the challenge of an intruder. This continuous conflict and jealousy within the flock can be the most detrimental thing. The sheep become edgy, tense, discontented, and restless. They lose weight and become irritable. But one point that always interested me very much is that whenever I came into view, my presence, uh, and my presence attracted their attention, the sheep quickly forgot their foolish rivalries and stopped their fighting. The shepherd's presence made all the difference in their behavior. And I think the same could be said for us when we're aware of our shepherd's presence. Moving on to verse 3, David says, that God also restores his soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And the point to be made here about guidance is that sheep can't be left to graze in one pasture for too long. Uh, they, gotta be, they have to be guided by their shepherd to new fields. And not only that, the sheep can easily get lost. They're prone to wander. And so the shepherd has to offer continual guidance. And David says that Yahweh has guided him down paths of righteousness that he never would have found on his own. And look at why uh, God has done this. He's done this for his own namesake. God has guided David down these paths for David's good, but also for his own glory. God did this for his honor and glory. God is sovereign in all things, and he is working not only for the good of his people, but also to display his glory for the enjoyment of the people he's guiding. So we can and ought to say that God is the beginning and the end of all our righteousness, right? His grace is what put us on the path of righteousness. His enabling helps us continue in our journey down it. And His grace really and His glory is the destination. This is for His name's sake. And then David goes on to say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your mace and your crook, they comfort me. And I love how in prayer, and uh, you have to understand the psalmists do this a lot. You have to pay attention to the personal pronouns that are used. Uh, He's speaking of Yahweh poetically, and then all of a sudden he turns and just talks directly to God. Instead of speaking of him in the third person, he speaks to him directly. And, And if you want a picture of this valley of the shadow of death, 
Maybe you could picture the, uh, the creepy, barren, gloomy mountain pass in Middle Earth that was the paths of the dead, right? Uh, or, or maybe the closest equivalent for us city dwellers would be uh, if you're out at an event late at night downtown and, and you, you have some good reason to go down an alley, but you enter an alley in a rough part of town late at night and you think to yourself, what am I doing? Like, if someone blocked this, I could get mugged, I could get killed, why am I going down this path? That's the idea here. And the idea here is this, that God led David down some paths that were dangerous, that were life-threatening. If you remember in First uh, Samuel, there were numerous occasions where Saul wanted to kill David. Uh, there were situations even when David was younger, before he was an adult, where he was caring for his father Jesse's sheep out in the wilderness, and, and there were predators that came to attack the sheep that could have uh, killed or maimed David himself. And so God led David down some dangerous, life-threatening paths where any rational person would be afraid. But there were three things that gave David courage and comfort in the middle of those dangerous situations. The first was simply the presence of the Good Shepherd, simply knowing that God is there, that He's not going away, that He's with me, that He will protect me. That set David's heart at ease. Uh, But David was also set at peace by Yahweh's mace and his crook. In David's day, shepherds carried a wooden club that was carved from tree roots that was essentially what we would consider a mace. And they could use it as a weapon, uh, right? If, they, if, they could, if, if you had a wolf that was carrying away uh, a lamb in its mouth, you could grab the wolf by the scruff of the neck and hit it over the head with the mace. Uh, it was a weapon. It also could be used to discipline sheep that were wandering away. You could throw it at them to get their attention. Uh, And Philip Keller tells a story uh, about an East African shepherd boy using a wooden mace uh, that is the exact same thing that David is talking about here in ancient Israel. Uh, Philip Keller says, Once in Kenya, I was photographing elephants and was accompanied by a young Maasai herder who carried a club in his hand. Uh, He came to the crest of a hill from which we could see a herd of elephants in the thick brush below us. To drive them out into the open, he decided to dislodge a boulder and roll it down the slope. As we heaved and pushed against the great rock, a cobra coiled beneath it suddenly came into view, ready to strike. In a split second, the alert shepherd boy lashed out with his mace, killing the snake on the spot. The weapon had never left his hand even while he worked on the boulder." That's a a visual picture of what David is talking about with this mace. David was comforted by the protection and, at times, the discipline that God provided with his rod. Uh, David was also comforted in the middle of danger by God's crook, uh, or the old King James, I think, says staff. And Philip Keller illuminates the utility of a shepherd's crook. Uh, He says, There are three areas of sheep management in which the crook plays a most significant role. The first of these lies in drawing the sheep together into intimate relationship. The shepherd will use his staff to gently lift a newborn lamb and bring it to its mother if they become separated. He does this because he does not wish to have the ewe reject her offspring if it bears the odor of his hands upon it. In another place, he says, Being stubborn creatures, sheep often get into the most ridiculous and preposterous dilemmas. 
I've seen my own sheep, greedy for one more mouthful of green grass, climb down steep cliffs where they slipped and fell into the sea. Only my long shepherd's staff could lift them out of the water back onto solid ground. One winter day, I spent several hours rescuing a ewe that had done the very same thing several times before. Her stubbornness was her undoing. Another common occurrence is to find sheep stuck fast in labyrinths of wild roses or brambles where they had to push in to find a few stray mouthfuls of green grass. Soon the thorns were so hooked to their wool, they could not possibly pull free, tug as they might. Only the use of the crook could free them from their entanglement. So David found that God's presence and the protection and discipline of his mace and the restoring and guiding care of his shepherd's crook was a comfort in the middle of danger and potential death. So what you have in in Psalm 23 verses 1 through 4 is God portrayed as a good shepherd. But turning to verses 5 and 6, David then portrays God as a gracious host. In verse 5, David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. In ancient Israel, a host would attend to the needs of their guests, and those surrounded by enemies who sought his harm, David saw that God had provided him uh, for him like a gracious host, constantly supplying all his needs. And notice that David says God has so cared for his needs, he's been so generous that his cup runs over. The host keeps filling it up to the brim. Uh, The provision is overflowing and superabundant. And then David ends with this thought. He says, surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the presence of Yahweh forever. Through his past experience with God, David's faith has become strong. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, he's not guessing, that the love of God will always accompany him. And I do want to justify a a couple of my translations here. The Hebrew idea that we translate uh, certainly uh, or surely, it means certainly or for sure or guaranteed. I was actually tempted to start verse 6 as guaranteed. Guaranteed, God's goodness and loving kindness will follow me all my life. And I also translated, you might have noticed, uh, instead of follow me, I use the word pursue. And the reason, there's two reasons for that. The word means pursue in Hebrew. You can legitimately translate that. But I'm afraid that in English, follow could give the wrong connotation. In moments of bitterness and cynicism, if we're weak in the faith, follow could be misunderstood to to mean that God means well, but His love for us, His goodness kind of lags behind, and it arrives too little, too late for the trial I'm going through. That is not what David is saying. The Hebrew idea of this word is to pursue or hunt. David is saying that God's goodness and loving kindness will pursue him all his days. It's it's really picturing God as this master huntsman who's going to hunt David down with his goodness and the purposes of his love. And I also uh, translated the word that we would normally expect, mercy. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Uh, I I use the word loving kindness instead, and that's because this is the Hebrew word chesed, and whenever we find it in the text, I love to tell you about it. You guys know that. It's it's the word for God's loving kindness, His steadfast love. Uh, It includes the idea of mercy, but more often in our Old Testament translations, usually our translators are using the word loving kindness, steadfast love. The, The way I like to picture it is God's 
permanent love that he it's his permanent committed covenantal love that he sets on those he loves um, and so David has experienced that God's love and goodness have pursued him and will pursue him all his life. So when I take David's words to heart and I make them my own, what the psalm teaches me is that God himself is the fulfillment of all my longings. In Hebrew, David literally says, I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Now, when you think about the house of the Lord, uh, just as an English reader, you could mistake that for the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. That's not what David's talking about here. You, you could think of it uh, uh, anachronistically as a church building, right? We come and worship together in, in church buildings. That's not what David is talking about. He's talking about experiencing God's love in life, and then when his life comes to an end, he will go to enjoy God's presence forever. That's what David looked forward to, and it's what punctuates this psalm with the hope of heaven. Well, that's my exposition, my interpretation of Psalm 23, but give me just a couple minutes to apply it. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the Good Shepherd, Great Shepherd, and the Chief Shepherd of our souls. And from his point of view, there's only two ways of doing life. In one way, you're connected to God, and He's caring for you, and He's involved in your life. And Psalm 23 is all about that. Yahweh is my shepherd. His goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life. But according to Jesus, the other way of doing life is a way of life where you're pretty much on your own and disconnected. David Paulson writes about this life that's disconnected from God, and he illustrates what's it, what it's like in something he's written called an anti-psalm. Based on his own life experience and his many hours of counseling experience, David Paulson has composed an anti-psalm to Psalm 23, and it reads like this, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing is quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and struck, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life is confusing. Why do things never really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And sometimes I'm so much all about me, it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said that hell is other people, but I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. David Powelson's anti-psalm <clears throat> is what life looks like 
whenever God vanishes from sight, the, the anti-psalm really captures the drivenness and pointlessness of life purposes that are petty and shallow and self-defeating. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand this. Something bad always gets final say when what you live for is not God. But the anti-psalm doesn't have to tell your final story. Uh, it only becomes your experience when you construct your reality from a lie. In reality, someone else is the center of your story. Nobody can make Yahweh go away. The I am was, is, and always will be whether you and I acknowledge him or not. And when you awaken to the fact that He exists, and He is good and He loves you, and when you see His Son, Jesus, for who He actually is, everything changes because you see a person whose care and ability you can actually trust. You experience His care, and you also see the, the glory and wisdom of a person that you're meant to worship. And you begin, over time, to love Him who loved you first. The real Psalm 23 captures what life feels like and looks like when Jesus Christ puts his hands on your shoulder. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your mace and your crook, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows." guaranteed that goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the presence of Yahweh forever. After hearing the anti-psalm, can you taste the difference? Psalm 23 is sweet, not bitter. It's full, not empty. You aren't trying to grab the wind with your bare hands. Someone else takes you by the hand and guides you. Brothers and sisters, you and I are on a journey, a spiritual journey. You are going somewhere, and there is someone caring for you. His love will accompany you wherever you go, and when your life comes to an end, He will accept, accept you gladly into His presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And when that day comes, He will take you home to the home that you've always longed for. You are not alone. And with him, you will enjoy his company forever, as well as with all the other saints who love him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a good shepherd. We thank you that you have been so generous, so patient, so gracious, and so merciful to us. You've not treated us according to what our sins deserve, but according to your mercy. And we pray, along with the psalmist, that you would guide us in paths of righteousness for our good and for your glory. We also pray that uh, you would help us and give us the enabling grace to serve you in this life, and that in your wise timing, you would take us to be with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.